Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. For the past three weeks, we have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, we have concentrated on the teaching that accompanies the Beatitudes more than the Beatitudes themselves. We have appreciated many things in these chapters, but primarily that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher of all times. That we are called to be part of an upside down kingdom and we are called to be salt and light. And that the Sermon on the Mount isn't perhaps a list of rules and regulations that we are to live by, but perhaps it's a whole new way of thinking that brings life and hope and an innovative approach to life. And so having looked really quite over the last three weeks at a general overview and the last two weeks then at chapter five, we come to Matthew chapter six. And we're just gonna read the first five or six verses. And it says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Last week, as I said, we concluded looking at Matthew chapter five, so today we move into chapter six. We have read a short passage, but we will try and look at the overview as much as we can of the chapter. In chapter five, we read and discussed those inspirational sayings, and it leaves one wondering, can I really achieve this quality of Christian life And if so, how do I do it? Chapter five leaves us thinking that our lives can be wonderfully, gloriously, dangerously different, but also it leaves us deeply challenged. Where does the strength to live like this come from? Chapter five leaves us in the nitty gritty of life. It takes us back to moral issues, anger issues, temper issues, how we respond to people. It takes us there and it grounds us there and it, and it leaves us there, the nitty gritty of life. And one is faced with shortcomings and yet we are strangely encouraged because what Jesus is saying is incredibly radically different to what the religious people said of that day and we ventured to guess and perhaps say that it is different to what the religious people say today. Perhaps there are not many more rules to be learned, but there's a new way of thinking and a new way of living. And is change possible? Can we live different lives? Is it possible to have a different attitude to money, to anger, to criticism, to our enemies and how we think and act and react? Is it really possible for our integrity to shine out and our word 
be our word. Challenging, but yet full of possibilities. However, although chapter five is pretty radical, what it says about going the second mile, about turning the other cheek, about giving the second tunic, Matthew six, I believe, is as revolutionary and as radical as chapter five, although it may not be seen so at first glance. In chapter six, Jesus moves away from our attitudes and he starts to confront our spirituality. How we deal with our relationship with God is dealt with front and center, and it is incredibly challenging. If Matthew 5 is about me and myself and I, and how I react and process stuff, Matthew 6 is about how I relate to the world around me. How do we deal with worry? How do we deal with stuff? Does what we have, does what we have accumulated give us our sense of value? Does it determine what we think of ourselves? Does having things or wealth give us our identity? And in a sense, does that hold up our life and our image? How we deal with such things, Jesus is going to tell us, is how we deal with God. He says, how, I, how you deal with these things that I'm gonna talk about now is how you deal with God. It is the mirror image of how we interact with him. And what Jesus does here in these few verses is fundamentally life-giving if we will let it be so. If we go back to week one, we talked about the choice that we have to make. Do we truly want to walk as he calls us to? A phrase that we have heard and I have talked about time and time again is that we are not changed from the outside in, but we are transformed as followers of Christ from the inside out. And this change is not rooted in how we see each other or other people, but it is rooted in how we and God, how you and God relate to one another. The external is irrelevant in some ways. It's how you deal with God is the crux of the issue. In our unseen private spirituality, who are we when the lights go out? And who really shows up then? How are we when we are challenged about our lifestyles by God. You know, how we live our life, there are two people that we cannot fool. One is God, and ultimately, we cannot fool ourselves. Matthew 6 addresses some of these tough issues, and if we desire to live well and have a life that's well-lived, we will be challenged by what we hear, but it will also, I believe, excite us. I have to admit, that I get really nervous around people who want you to think that they are super spiritual. Have you ever met those type of people? That they want you to think that they really do know God, or that they really are super spiritual, that they are people that have um, acclaimed or uh, have attained great closeness with God, that they are more spiritual than the average person. I'm not sure why this has a reaction in me, and it could simply be because it shows up how unspiritual I think I am myself on occasions. It's hard to describe, but people who always want others to think and know that they are spiritual and that they are always in some wonderful zone of communion with God, and that they are a little bit different, really make me nervous. As I said, I'm not sure why it is, but I do know that it is in part because I do not think, I do not believe that being spiritual is ethereal. I do not believe it is on some, oh, you've got to have the same knowledge as me. I do not believe that it is airy-fairy. I don't believe it is out there and it's unobtainable by most. 
because I actually firmly believe that the opposite is the case and that true spirituality is grounded in the real, the everyday, the nitty gritty of life because I believe that's where the reality of the Christian life is carried out. Sometimes you get people, and we use this phrase, that they're so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. You may not have heard that because it's, maybe it's my generation. But there is something wonderful about a life rooted in spiritual things in the nitty gritty of life. I think that that is what it is really all about. And we see this in Matthew 6 because Jesus is quantifying what spirituality really is. It is clear and concise and it is measurable here in Matthew 6. And if you want spiritual KPIs, they are here. They are absolutely here. The Sermon on the Mount is not some spiritual truth that exists out there or in this sphere of our life or different to this one over here as we looked at. Jesus gives us three concrete ways that we can work out how we are doing with God and before God. And these are the three. And it comes out of Matthew 6. First of all, he says, how is your generosity? How is your self-discipline? And how is your prayer life? How is your generosity? How is your self-discipline? And how is your prayer life? If you notice, they are all things that are internal. They have an outworking but they all start on the inside and work out. The answer to these three questions will tell us how we are doing with him. If you're in the habit of asking God how are things between you and him, these responses or these questions will be dropped into our spirit, I believe, on a regular basis. How generous are you with life and not just money? How generous are you with all that you are? How disciplined are you? And discipline can be such a horrible word, but it's how faithful are we to do those things that God has called us to do when perhaps we don't even want to do them? And what is that prayer life like? What is that incredible opportunity to spend time with him and talk with him really like? They are uncomfortable because we don't like to be challenged around these things. But if we are to be healthy followers of Jesus Christ, then these tests are incredibly helpful for us. They will help us grow and be strengthened. But as we look at these questions, we need also to flag that in these first 18 verses of chapter six, Jesus uses the word hypocrite fairly regularly. Throughout Matthew, Matthew uses the word hypocrite a lot. I think it's in Matthew 23, he actually uses it seven times. It's a big thing on the Sermon on the Mount. It is where the Greek word for actor comes from. It is the idea that you have one life on the inside and one life on the outside. And he uses this challenge time and time again. Whilst Jesus, of course, was challenging the listener, there was also something else that was going on at the same time as Jesus was walking on earth. And we read this from Josephus, the Jewish scholar. He's addressing something that was in wider society that was happening, and he was addressing the issue of double standards. He is challenging a religious group that existed in first century Palestine who always claimed to be right with their answers, but they lived horrible lives. They claimed to be right and better than others and other Jews at this time, but their life didn't match up with it. And they had a lifestyle that was contrary to the wisdom that they were saying that they were telling people. And Jesus is calling them out. 
And he is calling them out, and he is addressing this to the listener. He's addressing it to us. He's also addressing it to people who are listening outside his circle. And he says, how's your generosity? How's your self-discipline? How is your prayer? And he's basically saying they were getting it wrong and they were missing the point, and that they were living in a world of double standards, saying one thing but doing another. If Matthew 6 is saying anything, and it is saying a lot, it is saying be careful of double standards in our private life. Be careful of double standards in our family life. Be careful, of course, of double standards in our public life. Hypocrisy, acting, is a terrifying thing when it is done before God and before his people, whether it is perpetrated by nations or by individuals. Let's turn to Mark 7. Just want to read six or seven verses, again addressing this. It says, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he said. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and defile a person. Jesus at the heart of his understanding of human nature says it's not what you do that it really is the problem. It is what causes you to do what you do is the issue that we want to deal with. What is inside is the challenge for most people. Double standards, they have no place. Hypocrisy, it has no place. We don't have any time for that, Jesus says. It's what's inside is the main issue. <laughs> One of the best pieces of advice that we were given as young parents, and uh, you know when you're young parents, well, you probably don't, but it's like you think, how are we ever gonna cope with this? How are we ever gonna be successful and faithful? And when we had, when our children was young, the best piece of advice that we were ever given, and it's the only advice I ever pass on to people today who are having children, is to discipline your children for attitude rather than for their actions. Discipline them for their attitude rather than their actions. You won't get it right, but it's the best thing that you can do for your children. And when they're 30 or 35 and 40, they will look back and they will say, thank you for what you did. Often, at an unwittingly, as parents, we strive for good behavior from our children, especially when other people are around, rather than dealing with attitude. As long as little Billy or little Mary behave himself or herself, when so-and-so are over for dinner, all will be fine. That's not the case. That's not really the truth. Let me explain. Perchance we have all seen or we have perhaps even been parents ourselves when some little darling has been so naughty and to make it worse, it's in public, it's in the supermarket, or God forbid, it's in church, that they perhaps, they throw a temper tantrum, they, they lie on the floor crying. I'm sure we've never seen New Zealand kids do this. But I'm sure that we all know of examples that we've heard of from other people. 
And we will do anything, and the poor parents will do anything to get them to stop. Let's imagine we manage to get them to be quiet and we are overwhelmed with relief. But the child, although not crying or misbehaving outwardly, is still raging. And nothing has changed inside. There's just been an outbreak of silence externally. But on the inside, the attitude of anger and rage for not, what, for not getting what they wanted truly rages on. And behavior has changed, but nothing has been done about the attitude on the inside. And that will come home to roost unless it is dealt with, challenged, talked through, and disciplined. How often have we been faced by a situation when someone or, say, a teenager needed to apologize and they didn't want to, and they said, you need to apologize. And they don't get an answer. They said, you do need to apologize. And they say, oh, sorry. And so often we are happy with that. But we shouldn't be because the attitude has not apologized at all. The internal is still as rebellious and as angry and in a bad way as anything. But we have just gone for the actions on the outside. Such situations are simply storing up problems for us later in years. And so often we say, you know, that person's got a bad attitude. They have a bad attitude because an attitude wasn't dealt with when they were a child. Love your children when you have them, if you've got them, enough to challenge attitude. And this is what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he's doing here in Matthew 6. He is challenging the internal attitudes. You know, as a pastoral team, we often have people come to us and ask, how do I deal with this issue or that issue? How do I deal with the temptation? to, excuse me, to unfaithfulness? How do I resist the temptation to be greedy or to be full of resentment and and jealousy? And these, because these things can haunt us and taunt us. The answer may, they may include some altering, some external behavioral patterns, but the reality is if the inward issue isn't dealt with, then none of those things are really gonna change. They may go underground for a while, they may disappear, but if the inward issues are not dealt with, we still have a problem. What Jesus gives us on the Sermon on the Mount is a way to experience real change. So in verses one to four, Jesus talks about almsgiving. And for those of you who are under 45, you won't know what that is, which means acts of private giving. That's what almsgiving means. In verses five to 15, he talks about prayer. And in six to 18, he talks about fasting. Generosity, prayer, and self-discipline. And in the second half of Matthew 6, from 19 to 33, he talks about ambitions and priorities, position and status, and worry. What Jesus is doing here is wrapped up in two things. He starts, as I said, with the inner life and shows how they impact the outer life. He says, if we want to handle Worrying, worrying about having enough, enough clothes, enough money, the right status, the best address, having everything in general. We know what the world will tell us. We know that the world will tell us to save. It will tell us to work hard. It will tell us that we need to defend ourselves. We need to be, in that sense, strong in the workplace, and we need to defend ourselves. And none of those things can be wrong. But Jesus says, if you want to be successful in the whole area of worry and anything that I'm talking about in these passages, Jesus says, my answer to worry is to be generous. If you are worried that you don't have enough money 
then give some away. I hear you thinking, Chris, you can't say that because some people have really, really fiscal problems and they, they, they just don't have that amount of money to give away. You can't say that. Well, this is an upside-down kingdom. This is back-to-front living. And this is where the Bible, this is where the Sermon on the Mount collides with 21st century Western culture. And Matthew 6 is talking about these issues. One of the beauties of teaching through the Bible systematically or exegetically as we talk about it is that we come to passages like this that make us uncomfortable, but we have to face up to what it is saying. We will come to other passages that talk about being good stewards, and those two have to be balanced. But at the moment, he is saying, you know, if you're prone to worry, just be generous. The fundamental teaching of the Bible on money is this. If you hold on to it, it will take hold of you. I remember when I was eight, and it's probably one of the best things, this has nothing to do with my sermon, I don't think, but one of the best things that my parents thought, I used to get some pocket money for working with my dad on the farm. And I was eight, and I got, I can't remember how much it was, but I do remember the lesson was, son, you now need to tithe that, and you need to be generous with it. I was eight. And something was instilled into me about being generous and about being open-handed, as it were, with money. You see, the, the teaching on the, of the Bible on money is this. If you hold it with an open hand, it will never become an idol in your life. And you will always have enough. And you will be free to live under the mercy and the grace of God. Money says, the more you have of me, the more you will be able to do. God says, be careful that it doesn't become an idol. And he addresses it through generosity. Be generous with your life, with our attitudes, our finance, our compliments, and some things that will start, and something will start to happen deep within us that will have far-reaching consequences. I don't know what it is, but it's something of God. God has been speaking to me recently about just giving people compliments, just being complimentary. I find it easy to communicate with people, whether it be the garage or coffee. I'm just finding God sort of saying, has been saying to me, just say something. Just say something different. Just engage them. Say something, thank you for doing this. Or, hey, what sort of a day are you having? Just say, you've been really good to me. And you know, the thing that has surprised me is is how they have responded to someone saying nice things to them that they have been taken back by the, rather than somebody coming in and say thanks and just out. That we be generous with our words, that we be generous with all that we have. So I said, something starts to happen deep within us. You know, goods that we have accumulated, skills that we have developed, ambitions that we have, need to be used for his kingdom. It is what we do with our money that determines the power that it has in our life. And Matthew 6 is incredibly radical. In Matthew 6, Jesus takes alms, giving to the needy, prayer and fasting, and explains to us how to live. But before we go too much earlier on, I just want to look at three little verses that seem to contradict each other, but they don't actually, but it's worth us just seeing them. In Matthew 5, 16, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see that your good works, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Verse 20 says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. 
But here Matthew 6, 1 says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So come on, Jesus, which is it? Let everybody know about it or don't let anybody know it? Well, the, words for, the word for deeds and righteous in these three verses, it's the same. It's the same word in the Greek. It's called dikaios. It says, let your light shine before men in verse 16, and then unless your good deeds shine out. And then verse 6, it says, be careful to do your good deeds in private. Well, the answer to the question, which is it? The answer is, of course, both. Because Matthew 5, verses 16 and 20, he is talking about our external decisions. But in Matthew 6, it is about what we do on the inside when no one else is watching or no one else. When we decide to be generous, no one else needs to know that. But that when we are doing good, we just want people to know that we are a different type of thinker and that we belong to Jesus. This whole chapter, if not the whole of our Christian life, is predicated and grounded in why we do what we do. Comes back to that attitude. Why do we do what we do? Why do we react the way that we do? This dichotomy between inward and outward is so often and difficult to explain and express the importance of the both. But this is what I believe Jesus is trying to explain here. (laughs) My private life, in some ways, is none of your business. But what I do in my private life will manifest itself eventually in the everyday. What I'm trying to say here is this. There are two things that come out of chapter six. And at first they look as if they're contradictory, but in reality they're not. First of all, we spoke about hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite. And the second is, and again it may sound like a contradiction, our private life, our private spirituality, our private, what we do in private, has public consequences. Our spiritual lives will work themselves out one day in our behavior. What you are doing in the dark today will work itself out. It will work itself out. This is not to put pressure on anyone or make anyone feel bad or lesser, but it is the reality of being part of a kingdom and a community of faith. If you are involved, or if I am involved in secret sin, then you are affecting my spiritual life and vice versa. Our our hidden sins have consequences for others. What happens privately, in some ways, is none of my business, but it will work out in the public arena. This is why Jesus takes time to teach the listener that they cannot separate their private piety from their public life, and that in tandem with this, that they need to be so devoted to him that they put him first in all things. That when I look at the internet, I am reminded that because we are a family, we are one body, all of you are watching it with me. Probably a thousand people, adults and children, will have been through Gateway today. And it reminds me that when I am watching something on the internet, or I'm watching something on my screen, there are a thousand pair of eyes looking at my, over my shoulder at what I'm looking at. How would you feel if you were walking down the street and you saw an incredibly handsome man, ladies? 
that is attractive to you and he wasn't your husband or your boyfriend or you never knew him at all and you allowed your mind to wander after him and you suddenly realized that all your sisters were therefore wandering with you. There is no difference between the private and the public. There is a corporate dimension here to our private lives that tie us all together. (laughs) Personally, this is why, and this is why we're gonna do it tonight after, I love communion. And it is one of the gatherings, well, I don't miss any of them unless I'm ill or on holidays, I'm at everything. But one of my favorite gatherings is communion. And I think it's the one that we should always make our most effort to be at. I love it more than anything else because I get the invitation to examine myself based on what I have done this week, these past few days, what I've said, what I've done, what I've seen, what I haven't said, what I haven't been able to do. But I can come and I can say, I am invited to examine myself and then say, Lord, come and examine me and where I have failed, I apologize and I'm sorry. And something in my life gets reset. Something gets recalibrated so that I can go on again. Fallen, yes, but forgiven. But coming to that place, not that I want to just sin and come back here and get forgiveness and carry on, but because I strive and desire to live differently. Prayer, giving, and fasting all sit together in Matthew 6. And Jesus (laughs) talks about how he wants us to live. And he also says about giving that, I, that we're not supposed to know what our left hand is doing or we, don't, we shouldn't tell our right hand what our left hand is doing or whichever way it round. You see, almsgiving in the Jewish culture had nothing to do with the organized church of the day. Giving to the poor was an individual thing. It wasn't something that they did through the synagogue or through the temple. It was one person giving to another person in the faith community who was in need. It was done face to face, done kindly, done quietly, done sensitively, and done with grace. Today, and I think somehow it's to our detriment, that we have removed ourselves from this closeness, and it has pushed us away to give to charities, give to non-profits, or give to the church, even to help take care of the poor and of those in need because there is something incredibly confrontational about seeing someone or God saying to you that someone is in need, go talk to them. Well, I'll give it to the church to do it. And I said this morning, you won't be able to do this very long, for much longer, but it's far more easy to write a check than give, and give it and get the church or the charity or the nonprofit or the food bank to do it than being open to what God says and says, I want you to do something about it. And there was no way that this existed. There was no church to give the money to. They didn't do it in the synagogue and the temple. And this is incredibly confrontational when you have to do this as an individual. The interesting thing about New Testament Christianity is that in the beginning, in the early days, really did the organized church, even in the New Testament, give to meet the needs of the poor in the community of faith. It started to change 30, 40 years later when some of the epistles and the later gospels were written. But you see, giving to the poor is supposed to be you and I meeting other people's needs. It's not necessarily in our faith community, it's outside our faith community. So Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is giving, for the reason no one else needs to know anything else about it and about how much you give and how you do it. 
And he does this elsewhere when he talks about giving secretly. You see, if you were a faithful Jew and you were going to rabbi or Sunday school, there were three things that you would need to spend a lot of time on and you would be taught on and they would be educated in. And in rabbi school it was praying, giving, and fasting. If you were a faithful Muslim then, well not then, but when it was established and even today, there are five areas that are of great importance and already you can guess what three of them are. So when Jesus hones in on these three things, he is focusing in on what the listener already knows to be the key principles of spiritual life. These are the KPIs, as I said earlier, and they are always in this order. So I think if we get our money sorted, everything else (laughs) tends to flow out of that. See, the call to giving is to give generously and not conspicuously or or visibly, but we are called to be generous. In verse two, the word that is used here for trumpets is very interesting. If I were able, obviously I can't, if I were able to take you back to the old temple in Jerusalem, in one of the courts, actually called the women's courts, not because it was the only place that women could go, but they couldn't go any further into the inner temple. Alongside one of the walls, there would be a row of baskets. I think there were about 13 baskets, and they weren't for collecting flowers, but these baskets were called trumpets. The Talmud, the Old Testament, calls them trumpets, and they were the offering baskets. It is where you put the money that you were gonna give, offering baskets, and as I said, they were called the trumpets. They looked like that. Something to do with the shape and old-fashioned trumpets, I don't really know. See, what would happen is this. The scribes and the Pharisees would stand beside the trumpets and would watch as people gave. The giver then got to decide how they distributed that money. There's two or three things that they had to give, but they could then choose how they gave that money to pay for the sacrifices in the temple. They could pay for the wood that the sacrifices were burnt on. They could give for different things, but they gave into these baskets that were called trumpets, and the scribes and the Pharisees were watching them. They could even give to the army. However, there was no basket for giving to the poor and for those in need. But as we heard last week, the scribes and the Pharisees had placed many more rules on the Jewish people, and over the years, <coughs> they had begun to trumpet the cause of the poor and needy, and their own spirituality and holiness in giving to the poor and the needy. And it is where we get to trumpet a cause from. It's rooted in this. It's rooted in this. and these. Pharisees and scribes, they would trumpet what people would give. So-and-so has just given this to the needy. So-and-so has just given this to the poor. I have just given this. What a wonderful person this person is. And they trumpeted what each and every one gave. And they started to ask people, how much are you going to give to the poor? And let us take care of it for you. Give it, and we will pass it on. You know, Whenever you talk about money and generosity in church, there's always that sense of, ah, churches always talk about money, don't they? Oh, they only talk about generosity for those reasons. I said this this morning, but I think it's worth saying again. You know, we both came to this conclusion long before we had ever met, 
but we had similar philosophies and approaches to money. In all the churches that Don and I have pastored and been involved in at senior leadership level, we never know who gives any money to the church here. We have not got a clue who tithes, who gives anything. It is our deliberate ambition that we have no idea what anybody gives here at Gateway. And you know, we are really pleased about that because the fact that we don't know who gives anything, we, know, we now know that we can deal with you, we can chat with you, we can interact with you on the basis of who you are, not on how much you give. So often the church down through the centuries has been blighted by people who have used money to influence and pastors and clergy have used those situations to get money out of people who had it. There's something that we didn't want to be part of. So we, whenever we do anything with anybody in our faith community, none of it's ever based on how much people give or don't give in that situation. And it's a place of life and it's a place of freedom. <laughs> um, I, I sit on the finance committee here at church and technically I signed off on the stuff I just sign where Kez tells me. But um, about three or four years ago, I had a phone call, and they said, um, this is the IRD in Wellington. And when any official body rings me, I always get a bit nervous. I don't know what it is. But they rang me, and they said, oh, are you Chris Jones? And they said, yeah, yes, I am. And they said, are you, um, do you oversee the finance at Gateway? And I said, yes, I do. And that, that phrase is going to come up quite a bit in the next 30 seconds. Yep, so you oversee finance at Gateway. Yes, I do. We're doing a spot check on someone who has made a, a tax claim, and we want to know if they did give this money to Gateway, and because you are the person who's in charge of finance at Gateway, we want you to verify it. They do that occasionally. And I said, technically I am the person that oversees finance, but I don't know anybody who gives. Can I get somebody else to answer your question? And then they came back to me and they says, you don't know who gives, although you oversee finance. And I said, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. And so Kels had to verify that person that they had, whatever they were asking. Money controls so much. Generosity is so important. Let's get back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus challenges them at the very deepest level of their being about the handling of money. You see, in the Jewish system in those days, as we've already perhaps alluded to it, they, they used to publish how much people gave in the synagogue and in the temple. There is something very challenging about finance, but there's also something incredibly challenging about prayer here. Matthew 6, 6 says, go inside and close the door. It says this, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The Greek word here for room is tamion. And it is the inner room in the Jewish home. It's still the same today. Where everything that was costly, where everything was expensive, where everything was valuable that needed to be guarded and protected, any gold or silver or family looms, family heirlooms, was kept in this room called the Tamian. Where their treasure was, their heart was there. And Matthew 6, 6 says this, and Jesus is making a direct challenge, a direct comparison and he is saying to the first century listener, I want you to go to the most important room in your home, 
The room that gives you your financial security, that gives you a hope for a future, that gives you worth, that shows how much you've worked or what your family has given you or what perhaps you'll be able to do in your, fam- in your, in your future. He says, I want you to go there and I want to change the currency of what you've got there and I want you to go and pray to your father. And he says this, I am telling you that there is a better inner room and you can pile it high with treasure before God and you can get to know him. And it is better to know him and trust him and love him and spend time with him than to have all that money in your inner room in your house. And he says there is a tamion in your, in, in your house that will fade that will become paraphernalia, will become useless because you won't take it with you. But there is also a tammy and there is also a place that will build up riches for you, that will give you a place of communion and intimacy with the living God that will radically change your life and those around you. (coughs) That's what I want you to do. Jesus has radically challenged them over generosity and he's challenging them over prayer life. You know, I'm gonna ask you a question. We're gonna be closed in a couple of moments and we're gonna come to communion. How's your inner spiritual life? One last thought, and it's here in Matthew 6, again 22. It says this word, it says this verse, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole darkness will be, your, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? See, in English, we have an idiom to describe someone who is a generous person, who is a big-hearted person. And we would say that they are a very open-handed person. And if they weren't, we would say they were tight-fisted. Open-handed or tight-fisted. Open-handed with generosity, with our, with our homes, with, our, with all that we've accumulated, with everything that we've got, our time. Or either some people are just tight-fisted. That's the English idiom that you were familiar with or are familiar with. The Jewish equivalent of this is the somewhat completely different. And if you were an open-hearted person, you would be a big-hearted person, you would be called wide-eyed. And if you were a tight-fisted person, you would be known as a narrow-eyed person. So when Jesus especially talks about the eye and the impact and the eye is the, is the, is the, way, the way to the heart, he is saying something far more than that we grasp in the English. If you were wide-eyed, you were generous. If you were narrow-eyed, you were mean, and it wasn't just about money. As I said, in Jewish culture, to be wide-eyed was to live generously. And Jesus is saying, take care of the eye because it is the lamp to your body. It is a way to how you live. It is insightful to everything that you are internally. That is why we need to take care of it. And he calls us to be kind and to be compassionate, to be wide-eyed and have an open door in our home and to welcome strangers, to turn the other cheek and not to worry about a left-handed slap and to go the extra mile or to get a tunic and give a second one to whoever asks. To be wide-eyed is to see hope when there is no hope. To be kind and gracious where kindness and graciousness does not really deserve to be given. It is an opportunity to change people's lives with, because of what God is doing in us and through us. To be narrow-eyed means to be mean 
and grumpy or tight-fisted. And Jesus is saying this here, and the Jewish listener is getting it. Be wide-eyed. Look after your eyes. Look after your eyes because they are the way to your soul and to your heart and your inner life. Take care of your eyes and make sure that they are wide-eyed and that you're not narrow-eyed. And the Sermon on the Mount challenges us over these things. And it is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.